I'll read the passage as a whole. We'll pray and we'll get into our study this morning. Exodus 7. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so. Just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, Show a miracle for yourselves. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. And so the Egyptians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. But Aaron's rods swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river." Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. This was God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just come before you this morning and I just pray for your blessing over this time of teaching. 
Lord, I pray that what I say would be faithful to what you have said and what you intend to say this morning. I pray it would be helpful. I pray it would make things that are otherwise unclear or ambiguous clear enough to our minds and hearts that we are able to understand and receive what you have for us. Lord, I pray that what you have said here would change our lives. I pray that whatever we've come here this morning with, whatever troubles, whatever trials, whatever difficulties, I pray that in this message, in this truth of what you have said, that we would find a foundation for our lives. That we would find safety and security. That there would be something for us to hold on to when we don't know what else to do. I pray that we would be able to receive these truths and share them with others. That they too might know what it means to build our lives upon the rock. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Exodus chapter 7, it's a very important message. Here we have the beginning of what is often known as the 10 plagues. You could look at them as the 11 signs because technically the first thing done is not a plague. It's the rod becoming a serpent and that's a sign. And of course, all the plagues are intended to be signs. They're not just tricks. They're intended to point somewhere and to validate who God is. And so there's a point to all of the plagues. And we see the 10 plagues beginning here. And if we look at them as signs, then there's actually 11. The first one being here also with the rods becoming serpents. There's three main points I want to make from three main sections of this text, and here's the first point. Not even the most stubborn and hard-hearted people can thwart the will of God for those who trust in Jesus. This text has become, or it has been, what they call the locus classicus or the ground zero of the debate on divine sovereignty and human free will. As a matter of fact, this is not just the case in the Old Testament, but of course, the Apostle Paul doubles down on this in a famous comment in Romans chapter 9. And so this idea of predestination, divine sovereignty over all the affairs of men, and yet, the reality that human beings are moral agents who make real decisions for which they are and will be held to be responsible. And many people have wrestled over those things because the, the tension seems to be in human wisdom, apart from biblical revelation, it seems to be that these things cannot be both true. That you need to choose either one or the other. And I would actually say in, in much of Christian history, not all of it certainly, but in much of Christian history, that's actually what has happened. People come to this text and they say, well, there's no way God, he can't do that. If God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, well, then Pharaoh is no longer a free moral agent. I mean, think about it. Is, is that right? For God to punish Pharaoh for something it sounds like he's making him do? I'm going to harden your heart then get mad at you for making it hard? Is, is that what's going on? 
And then the other people, well, no, it sounds like God's sovereign, so, so no, uh, Pharaoh has no choice in the matter. He can't do it. Oh, and God's still right for punishing him anyway, and we'll just find a way to make that sound not morally repugnant. People tend to come to passages like this, and they choose between either God is sovereign or human beings have free will. What I want to assert this morning is that the Bible teaches both are true. Both are taught. Both are true. Now, here's, I'm going to say a couple very important things about this to kind of frame how we think about it. Number one, the Bible's primary purpose in communicating these two doctrines is not to tell us how they are true, but that they are true. That's a world of difference. The goal of the Bible is not to give us a philosophical treatise on how it is possible. The point is simply to tell us that it is. We need to know that God is completely sovereign over all things. Let's make it less philosophical and let's bring it back to the story. Moses is going in to the most powerful man in the world. That's intimidating. Have you ever had a meeting, an interview, somebody who has power over you, or maybe some of you have been under arrest or something like that? It's like somebody who has power over you. That can be a very intimidating thing. And so when Moses is going into this man who seems to control the world, He seems to have Moses' destiny and the destiny of all the Israelites in the palm of his hand. And when God says these things, what he is communicating to Moses is, look, Moses, even though it looks like Pharaoh is in control, Pharaoh is God. That's what they taught the people. Pharaoh is a God incarnate. And man, his power sure made it look like that was true to most people most of the time. But God is saying to Moses, Moses, though it looks like Pharaoh is sovereign, I am sovereign over Pharaoh. Naturally, Moses is going to say, well, if you're sovereign over him, then that would mean he would do all the things I want him to do. Or he would do all the things that accord with your nature. So since you're sovereign God and since you're good, therefore, Pharaoh would have to be good also because you're good. And we might be tempted to either say, well, Pharaoh can't do any wrong or if he does, that God caused it. But what Scripture is very careful to say is that God is never the author of evil. God does not cause anyone to sin. The Bible doesn't tell us how this is true, but that it is true. And I just want to give you a few clues as to how we might think about this in a healthy biblical way. One of the things I want to point out is that it actually says ten times in the Exodus narrative that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten times. It also says ten times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Let me give you one example. Exodus 8.32 But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. 
here and elsewhere, the text tells us it's not God doing it, or at least it doesn't specify that. It says that it's Pharaoh that is doing it. So somehow God is doing it, but Pharaoh is doing it. God is sovereign over all human decisions, and yet human beings are actually making real decisions. Well, how do we reconcile that? The Bible reconciles it, I think, in this way. God enables Pharaoh to do his own will. In other words, there's a difference between being sorry and getting caught. I've told my children this, for example. There's a difference between I want to do something because I actually believe it's wrong or I, or I believe it's right versus I don't like the consequences of it. What I want to suggest is it is absolutely in Pharaoh's heart and it's Pharaoh's decision. Pharaoh has already decided I'm not going to worship Yahweh. I'm not giving up my power. I'm not giving up Israel. No, not now, not ever. Pharaoh has already decided that. That's his position. God didn't do that. And yet, even though that's Pharaoh's position, if you apply enough leverage to a person's life, if there's enough punishment, even a person who has not changed their belief at all may simply give up at some point, not because they've changed their position, but they simply don't want to take the consequences anymore. What I think God is doing, and one of the words used, it's not the only one, but it's chazek, and it means to strengthen. It actually says where a lot of times it's translated harden in Hebrew, it's strengthen. God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. So he actually enabled Pharaoh to fulfill his will. In other words, he's stubborn, but, but he has a breaking point. Not where he's going to repent. He won't repent. But he has a breaking point where enough punishment comes, and of course, he'll, he'll just relent for a moment. What God is saying he's going to do is, look, Pharaoh has already decided what he's going to do. He doesn't want to listen. He doesn't want to obey. He's not going to repent. That's a settled story. What is to be determined now is how I will work this out for my glory and the benefit of my people. And so what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to take his own decision, his own act of disobedience, his refusal to obey, and I'm going to give him the strength to keep going long enough for all of the gods of Egypt, one by one, to be exposed as frauds. I'm actually going to preach to the whole nation. No, I'm actually going to preach to the world. I'm going to use him as an example to the world. In this section, you, you might think that, well, this is just about Moses and Pharaoh and this private audience. But of course, you see these plagues begin spilling out into the people. And one of the things that happens later in the Torah, later in the story of Moses, is when the children of Israel are out of Egypt and they're entering into the promised land, the Canaanites, the people who dwelt in the promised land, had heard the rumors of how Yahweh, the God of Israel, delivered them out of the hand of Egypt. This word, this gospel of who God really is was being spread. That is what is at stake here. So God is not making Pharaoh who would otherwise obey God 
who would do what is right. He's not doing that. He is enabling him to be stubborn enough to go a little bit longer in what he had already purposed to do so that God could expose the false gods of Egypt. Is God sovereign and free enough to do that? Can God use people who come against you, who hurt you, who bring pain into your life, who rob you, who malign you? Can God use that? Maybe some of you have actually faced that. You look and you see what other people are capable of doing to your lives. You know, when I was young and I was a teenager, it was more like the big issue is just coming into control of myself. Like not bringing needless pain on myself. And I thought that was a big deal. And then later, you, you, you basically have that taken care of, more or less. You're de- dealing with inner sins of, of not trusting God as much as you should. Of course, you're always dealing with that. But outwardly, you, you got it down pretty good. But then you start seeing how, look, you can be in control of your life. You can do everything by the book. You can keep all the rules. You can do all the things God's telling you to do. And yet, you have no control over what anyone else does. And they can hurt you both intentionally and unintentionally. And it's easy to believe when you have literally no control over what other people do and they're bringing pain into your life, it's easy to believe that this pain is now sovereign over my life. It decides where I will go and what I will do if I have a reason for living, if I can get up this morning and go out and come back. This pain, this situation, this person is sovereign. And God, I love you, but I don't know that you compare with this. That's how we can feel. I've talked to many wonderful believers over the years where they'll they'll tell you, I've had a very hard time, Pastor Mike, literally getting up out of my bed, out the door to do my job, and get back the same day. I don't have stories of great ministries that I'm doing. I don't have stories of great victories, of evangelizing and all that. Honestly, the most I can do is not completely give up. This pain has so come to me that it feels sovereign. What I think this text is teaching us is that God is sovereign even over the things that cause us pain. Even when people make wrong decisions, God has not lost His throne. God is still sovereign over those things so that He can still turn them around and use them for His glory. God is sovereign over sin in that respect. The Apostle Paul says that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. What Paul said there was that where sin went wild and did its worst, God used that very place. Jesus, the perfect one, nailed to a tree. The worst tragedy in human history. The only person who deserved, according to the law, never to die, but to inherit eternal life. Jesus actually earned it, and yet He's dying on the cross. It looks like the greatest wrong It looks like God isn't sovereign. Jesus in His humanity is so crushed over the experience, He shouts out from His heart, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, Paul taught 
that it was that place, the darkest hour, the darkest moment, when it seems like God couldn't possibly be sovereign over this. He couldn't possibly take the death of His own Son who deserved life and the injustice that surrounded it and turn it around. No, not just for good. The greatest good the world has ever known. God is sovereign even over sin. And that is what it means. When times are dark and the cruelty of the pharaohs of this world are harshest against you, remember that God has not lost His sovereignty. But call to mind in prayer and worship that even Pharaoh's cruelty can be used by God to further His eternal plan for your life. You know, it's a very popular verse and for right reason. But we often don't think about the doctrine that must be true in order for this verse to have meaning. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. That's a wonderful verse. Been put on many coffee mugs and t-shirts and bumper stickers and things like that. Like I said, for good reason. But how can Romans 8.28 be true? How can all things, not just some things, not just most things, not just good things that are already good. No, how can all things, including bad things, evil things, wrong things, how can they possibly be turned for good? Unless God is sovereign over all, including the decisions of Pharaoh and of anything else this world throws at us. One of the most moving stories in the Bible for me is the story of Job. And at the very beginning, there's an absolutely horrendous and remarkable scene. And it would not be possible without the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Let me read you that story. Now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Talk of, you do you feel that? The thing piling on one after the other, after the other. You know, people go through bad things in life, but after that first thing, you're like, that's bad enough. And then here it is again. And then here it is again. And here it is again. And I would think a normal person in that sense, you lose 
any sort of belief that God's in control. After the first one, you're like, okay, God, uh, this is really bad. I can't believe you let it happen, but okay, you're, you're so sovereign. <laughs> That's what I'm going to tell myself. Yeah, you're, you're sovereign. And then the second thing comes, oh, uh, all right, you, you're, you're sovereign, right? I mean, you know, and by the third thing, the fourth thing, it's like most people, no way. There's no divine sovereignty in this world. It's all about corruption, evil, human freedom, human beings using their freedom to do bad things, and that's what the world is. And then we read verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. What is it that Job had to worship? What did he have to worship? Most of us worship God for the things that we have. Thank you, God, for my, my husband or my wife. Thank you for my physical health. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for my house. Thank you for my job. And we go to church and all that. But in the day you lose all that, many times you realize, well, what I really worship was these things, and, and I hoped God would keep those things in my life. What we see with Job is that he worshipped a God who was sovereign over all things. Job believed in the sovereignty of God. As I said, part of the problem with these doctrines, these two doctrines, divine sovereignty, human freedom, a lot of times it becomes speculation. It becomes a conversation where outside of the Bible, we try to reconcile how they can be true. And we forget that the Bible teaches that they are not how they are and it teaches them for us so that we have something to hold on to when it looks like everything is falling apart divine sovereignty means that even when it looks like everything is falling apart i believe in a god who holds it all together i believe in a god who literally holds the physical material universe together by the word of his power that he holds it all together. And that no matter what I see, no matter what changes, no matter what troubles come, I believe in a sovereign God who is sovereign even over all the evil and the calamity that I face. Though, as it even said there in the text, in such a way that God is never seen as the author of the evil. He never causes the evil itself. He allows it and is able to bring about good from it. The pharaohs of this world want to use hardship to crush your faith. God uses the same hardships to strengthen your faith. But in addition to encouragement, I think there's also a very serious warning here for us as well. Beware of becoming like Pharaoh and hardening your own heart. You may have heard the saying, 
but the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. When God strengthens a heart, he's strengthening what is already there. Pharaoh had already purposed to reject God. When God strengthens his heart, it becomes harder against God. But in those moments when we are in a season of difficulty, under attack, if we will commit our hearts to the Lord, He will strengthen them and use the same situation that breaks others to make us. What will harden someone else like Pharaoh can actually be used to melt that heart of wax so that God can mold us into the men and women that He wants to. But be very careful. And it's a very real temptation. I've had it many times myself, and I'm almost guaranteed to face it in many different ways as I move forward. I can even imagine some of the ways that will be coming in the future. But I remember one time in particular when my dad was dying, and I was holding his hand, and I remember kind of in my heart, I, I worked myself up to, to be ready to let him go. And in my mind, though, when he, when he went, it would be fast, it would be quick, and it would be painless. And when I saw him fighting for life, and it wasn't the peaceful way that I had imagined, and it looked to me, though my dad couldn't speak, but it looked to me that there was some fear there, a little bit of anger rose up in me. I was a little bit angry. I'm like, look, God, if you're going to take him, take him. Don't let him get hurt. And I, and I could feel, I'm getting angry. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me, to my heart, Mike, be careful of hardening your heart because if you do, you may never come back from it. And I knew those words were true and I knew they were for me. This is a life-changing moment for me. I did not ask for it, but I have been given it. And this anger in me, I have to be careful. There's some aspect of that anger which in the Bible we would call righteous indignation. I'm rightly anger that there's death in the world at all. The Bible justifies that anger. Death was not a part of God's plan. And God proved it by sending His Son to die in our place so that we would be resurrected and live forever. So I'm rightly angry about the fact there is death at all. But there is also sinful anger on my part. Angry that God's sovereignty was not being used in the way I wanted Him to use it. In the time that I wanted Him to use it. In the manner that I wanted Him to use it. And I simply had to surrender that. Stop trying to make myself tough and I just let it go. And I have never wept like that in my life. People talk about the fountain's gone. You can ask my wife. I don't I don't cry that much. And if anything, it's, you know, maybe if, if God does an amazing, wonderful thing and it's joy. But in general, I just, I just don't. Somewhere along the way in life, I remember as a little boy where, you know, he used to cry and he'd get hurt. And then there was a day, whatever age that was, nine, ten, something. I remember accidentally hitting my finger with a hammer. And literally, it was like right before that I would have cried. Instead, I got angry and threw the hammer. And it was like I learned to deal with pain that way. Instead of being sad, I'm like, I'm going to be tough. Maybe it's me being a man and being macho. I'm just going to be angry. And that way I don't show 
that I'm sad. I don't show my sorrow. But the Lord told me that this is a life-changing moment. Do not let your heart be the clay that is hardened by the sun. By faith, let it be the wax that is melted by the sun so that the Lord can mold you in His image. The second thing that we see here comes in verses 8 through 13. And that is, though Satan's power is real, it is limited in scope and inferior in quality to the power of God. How many of you saw the cartoon film, The Prince of Egypt? Did anybody ever see that? The Prince of Egypt. Now, I don't know if you remember this scene. I actually, I don't know why I remember it. Um, it's been so long. But there's the scene where uh, Exodus 7, Moses and Aaron are coming in. They're going to throw down their rods. And they've done that. They threw down the rod. It becomes a snake. Now it's Pharaoh's magician's turn. Do you remember what happened? In the movie, the rods don't become snakes. In the movie, they fake like they're going to throw it down and they kick over uh, like a bowl and the snake was in the bowl and it comes out. Many people have interpreted this passage to teach that. That what you have with the magicians of Pharaoh is not power of a demonic or supernatural kind, but rather sleight of hand. Very popular interpretation. It goes as far back as the 11th and 12th century with a famous Jewish rabbi named Rashi. And even up to the present day, some of the great Christian apologists of our age, defenders of inerrancy, actually teach that this didn't happen in the way that it sounds, that it was sleight of hand. Now, I recognize with so many people seeing it that way, I want to present that to you as a possible interpretation. But it's one that I don't hold. I do not believe that this text teaches that they did a trick. And I actually think this is important. Because if you believe Satan doesn't have any real power to do anything, I think that's a problem. There's always two extremes, and I know that. you got some people that go to one extreme, and Satan's equal to God, and like God's like, oh gosh, don't know if I can beat him today. He's really strong. Oh, I had a bad day, you know. And that's how they, or Satan's more powerful than God. It's one of the problems with watching horror movies and things like that. I had a guy call in on the radio show I did a few weeks back, and he was asking, hey, is it okay for Christians to watch horror movies? I'm like, that's a very interesting question. But one of the problems with it in most of those movies, it's like the monster, the demon, the spirit, the witch, whatever it is. In the movie, they're, they're omnipotent. They, it's like, what are you going to do? The only way they get defeated is, is like, you know, we, we did a little trick. We, we found this. We read this spell. We found this and, and barely lost it. But it looked like it was all under the sovereignty of this evil demonic being. And it gives you that impression. But that's not biblical either. God is completely sovereign over Satan and the demonic realm. And there's no competition between God and Satan. However, it is also foolish to say that Satan cannot do anything. But what we do see is that it's limited in scope. So the magicians are only able to keep up for a little while. They're able to perform this same sign and they're able to, to replicate two of the plagues. They are never able to reverse any of the plagues and they are no longer able to do the final eight of the plagues. So what we learn from that is Satan's power, though real, is limited in scope 
and inferior in quality. Not only do I think the Hebrew language here warrants that we understand it as a magical, supernatural act that they actually were able to do. It says, Gam chen. They also did in thus manner, in like manner, saying they did it in the same type of way. That's what it looked like. But there's also passages from the New Testament that support the fact that this is possible. Let me cite two of them. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24.4 said this, warning about the last days. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And guess what? The word signs and wonders are the exact same words used in Exodus 7. If you look at how the Greeks translated Exodus 7, it's the exact same words that Jesus is using here identical signs and wonders he doesn't say it's fake ones they won't do it they'll do tricks no he's warning they're going to be able to do actual signs and wonders second thessalonians 2 9 the apostle paul writes the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of satan with all power signs and lying wonders once again same words The Bible suggests that Satan certainly has power to do these kinds of things. We should not be ignorant of that. But what we can know for certain is that it's limited. They're not able to do everything. And they're also inferior in quality. What you see here is even though the magicians of Pharaoh are able to throw their rods down, what happens to their the snakes? It says Aaron's snake ate up all the other ones. It's another way of even in the power, the limited power that's been granted to Satan, even there God shows his superiority over the evil. So though Satan's power is real, it is limited in scope and inferior in quality to the power of of God. Lastly, number three, when the rivers of provision dry up, we are taught to transfer our faith from the instrument of our provision to the Lord who is the source of our provision. I think I mentioned before that in Egyptian religion, in Egyptian mythology, the Nile is deified they looked at it as a god there's actually a number of gods associated with the nile there's the god that is kind of the god of the nile that enables the the water to flow then there's a guardian of the nile there's all these gods associated with the nile and a lot of times modern readers look at that and you go well i'm not superstitious and i don't believe in all these gods so this doesn't relate to me i can't relate to what the egyptians were thinking But I want to suggest you absolutely can. And you do. We're just not perhaps as superstitious about it. The Nile represents whatever temporal, visible person or thing you look to in order to sustain your life. Think about that. Why did the Nile become something they deified? Because it made life possible for them. The water in the desert is worth more than gold. The Nile is why you see the first 
you know, the empire of Egypt arise. The Nile made that possible. When it would flood once a year and it would overflow the Delta region, it would make it fertile like you were in some tropical place in the middle of the desert. The Nile was vital. It enabled them to live. Their life was built on it. It was built near it. It was built around it. They were constantly, if anything went wrong with the Nile, it was their economy, everything. So for them, it only made sense that they looked to it with that kind of trust and that kind of faith. And like the ancient Egyptians, it is very difficult not to put your faith in whatever that is for you. Though we Westerners are generally less superstitious, we too make idols in our hearts over the same kinds of things. What instrument of provision do you trust in? For some of us, it's our gifts. It's our talents. It's our abilities. It's the stock market. It's the economy. It's whoever's in office. It can be all these different things. You're, you're looking, or your bank account. I mean, think about that. The, the worrisome nights that many of us have had and will have simply by looking at your computer screen and seeing digits looking at digits if they be greater or lesser your life already is whatever it is but by looking at that you can feel a height of emotion or a low at the same time it's like we're trusting in that we're looking at that oh hey life is good look at the look at the digits on, on my screen life is better <gasps> look at the digits you know oh, how am i going to make it we're looking at this we're trusting in it. And I think one of the tricks to life is to be able to look through those things. We don't ignore them. But to look through those things and say, Lord, whatever this screen tells me today, I trust in you. Lord, whatever the doctor says after I come back from this report, I trust in you. Lord, whatever this person tells me, if they're going to stick with me or they're going to leave me and Go be with somebody. Whatever they're going to say, I trust in you. I trust in the Lord. But you never really know how much you trust in the Nile until it has turned to blood. Until the thing that you built your life on suddenly brings death. I don't know that you really do know, in all fairness, no matter how much of the Bible you read and how many times you go to church, how many devotions you do, I, I mean, I think God can certainly mediate grace simply through that, but I honestly think there's nothing quite like loss. There's nothing quite like a source of life being turned to death that exposes who or what we ultimately trust in. And what God wants to do, what He wants to teach us, is to transfer our faith from the instruments of provision to the source of provision. God is the source of all life. So I look ultimately to Him for life. God is the source of my ability to have and earn a living. It is ultimately Him. It is God's ability to, to hold me together, to, even my, my mental faculties, how many of us take that for granted? Your ability to have coherent thoughts. 
That's one of the most basic things in the world we take for granted. Both of my grandparents on my dad's side, who I grew up with, I adored them. Grandpa Woody, World War II vet, amazing man. They both got Alzheimer's later in life. And I'm, I won't forget the day when I had my cell phone and I was walking out the house in Sonoma, Northern California, and I was on the phone calling my grandpa, and for the first time, he told me he didn't know who I was. The only one I trust for even my ability to form a coherent thought is God. But so often there's all these things we trust in, even if not consciously, just unconsciously. I just trust this is always going to be there. This, you know, this is just always going to be this way, or I'll never have to worry about that. But ultimately, what God is doing all through life is weaning us off of faith in the instruments and transferring us to faith in the source. James 1.17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift, is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Most of life is spent looking at the gift in the hand. What God wants to do through life, through, through loss, through difficulty, is teach us to look past the gift to the giver. It's one of the things that changes from being a little kid on Christmas to being an adult. When you're a little kid, you're just looking for the presents. You know, oh, what am I going to get this year? Is it going to be the red bike? You know, is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? As, as a parent, it's just it's the, the relationship, just my child looking up into my eyes and having that, seeing the giver of the gift. And the truth is that many times in life, we will not look to God as the giver until we lose the gift. It is true that so often we don't know what we have until it is gone. But the gospel, the good news for us that James says, is with God, the giver, he never changes. Even when a gift is taken from you, the giver remains. He has not changed. He will forever be the same. And we can look to and trust in Him. Proverbs 3, 5-6 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. How can I do that? Why should I do that? We can do that because God is sovereign over all things. We can literally trust Him with everything. Yes, even the great pains and troubles of this life. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank You so much for revealing Yourself to your servant Moses. We thank you for teaching him about divine sovereignty. That you are not dependent upon what other people do in order to get us where you want us to go. And I'm so thankful for that. Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning. I pray that as we purpose to believe in You, 
to follow you, to commit this season of life to, I pray that you would firm that resolve, strengthen that resolve. Help us to grow in our faith. Lord, prevent us from going down the road of doubt and unbelief. Lord, we know that we too can be like Pharaoh, becoming stubborn, hardening our hearts, saying, I don't care how bad it gets, I'm just going to keep going down the wrong road. I see too much in me to take pride that I could never do such a thing. But Lord, by Your grace, I just pray that for myself and everyone here, You would grant us a trusting heart, a heart that is sensitive to You, a heart that believes in You. And I thank You for the gift of this knowledge that we can trust that nothing is outside of Your sovereignty. You can and You will work all things together for the good of those who love You and who are called according to Your purpose. I pray for a blessing over this time of worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.